0: Page 877, Lord's Day 13, and then we'll open the Word of God to the Gospel of John chapter 1, reading the verses 1 through 18. The question is asked, why is He called God's only begotten Son when we also are God's children? Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are adopted children of God, adopted by grace for the sake of Christ. Why do you call Him our Lord? Because not with gold or silver, but with His precious blood, He has delivered and purchased us body and soul from sin and from the tyranny of the devil to be His very own. Now, let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of John. Chapter 1, reading the verses 1 to 18, and our text is the 14th verse. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And here's our text, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him, so far, the reading of God's holy word. History contains numerous illustrations of people who were enthralled by their own importance. The Roman emperor Nero liked to play the lyre. Although he was a rather poor musician, everyone praised his music because they were afraid to tell him the truth. You see, Nero sometimes uh, had people who disagreed with him put to death, and therefore they praised his terrible music. Nero said, when I die, what a loss I shall be to the art of music. When I die, what a loss I shall be to the art of music. Those in the royal court all agreed with him because they were afraid for their lives. Nero had started off a a reasonable ruler, but he became increasingly infatuated by his dreams of grandeur and lust for pleasure. In A.D. 68, Nero was deposed by a rebellion that gained the support of the Roman Senate. With his dreams of grandeur rudely terminated, he committed suicide by drinking poison. He died on the 9th of June at the age of 31. He thought of himself as a great and talented man. He reigned for 14 years, but he established such a bloody reign of terror that the world will always remember him as a tyrant. It is said that his last words were, what an artist the world loses in me. Nero was a self-centered, egotistical, power-hungry man, but he died without a friend in the world, having accomplished virtually nothing of lasting value. Congregation, there have been many like him throughout history. Some of the Roman emperors claimed to be gods. They descended from Jupiter, the king of the gods. Special feast days were held every year in their honor. At these grand celebrations, all Romans were commanded to worship the emperor and promise to obey him. Obey us, for we are gods. There have been numerous people in past centuries who claimed to be God or demanded worship as God. But brothers and sisters, while many men have desired to be God, there's only one God who became man. While many men have exalted themselves, there's only one God who humbled himself. Today, we want to consider the words of John 1, verse 14, where the apostle reveals some profound things about God's only begotten Son. As we consider this thought-provoking verse, I want to direct your attention to three things. He is the eternal Word, He is the incarnate Word, and He is the glorious Word. Let's read the beginning of verse 14 once again. Let's have a look. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In this verse, John calls Jesus the Word. By calling him the Word, he was declaring that Jesus existed from the beginning. Every person in the history of this world begins to exist at conception. But the Lord Jesus existed eternally as the second person of the Godhead. Before he was conceived in the womb of Mary, he lived. As a man, he had a historical beginning. As a man, he had a historical beginning. But as God, he is without any historical beginning. In verse 14... What does John mean when he calls him the Word? We'll go back to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. The Gospel of John opens with this statement, in the beginning was the Word, Logos. All who are familiar with the Old Testament immediately recognize the reference to the opening words of Genesis. God's Word in Genesis is His creative utterance. Genesis 1 tells us that at creation God said and it was. God said and there was. And in Psalm 33 6 which we looked at some time ago We read these words, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. He spoke and it was done. John takes up this Old Testament language to tell us some important things about the divine word. In the beginning was the word. Jesus had no beginning of his own. When other things began, he was. He was pre-existent. He did not begin to exist when the heavens and the earth were made. He was there before time began from all eternity. In the beginning was the Word. In verse 1, John goes on to say, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In this statement, we see that the Word, the Logos, is both distinguished from God, was with God, And identified with God was God he differs from the father yet he is one in essence with the father although he is distinct from the father he is not a creature he is fully divine just as the father the word was with God and the word was God verse 2 says have a look he the word was in the beginning with God He existed with a Father from eternity. And verse 3 says, all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. All that was created was created through the Word, Jesus Christ. He's not a created being, even as the Father is not a created being. Rather, He is the one through whom all created beings came into existence. We read in Hebrews chapter 1 that the worlds were made through him. And in Colossians 1, the apostle said, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. There are cults who maintain that Jesus was created by God. They reject the deity of Christ and insist that he is a creature of God. But the Bible is clear that Jesus is not a created being, but the creator of all created beings. The visible world and the invisible world find their origin in his creative power. And so, congregation, the one who is called the Word existed from eternity. Although he was conceived in Nazareth, he didn't begin in Nazareth. Although he was born in Bethlehem, he didn't begin in Bethlehem. Children, when you celebrate your your birthday, your mother might put candles on your cake, right? The number of candles for the number of years. You can count the number of years that you have existed. Every year, your mother adds another candle to the cake. Three, four five, six, seven, you know exactly how old you are. But when we speak of the Lord Jesus, that is not possible. He has lived from eternity. Theologians throughout history have said there was never a time when he was not. There was never a time when he was not. Notice what John the Baptist said about Jesus in verse 15. Please go there, verse 15. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. For he was before me. What did John mean? Wasn't Jesus born some six months after John the Baptist? Didn't John come before Jesus? Both in his his birth and public ministry, Jesus came after John. And yet, John said in verse 15, He was before me. He existed before me. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John spoke of Jesus' pre existence. He existed from eternity as the Word. Later in John's gospel, what did Jesus himself say to the Jews? Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. John 8:58. Immediately, the Jews, what? Took up stones to throw at him. Why? Why were they so angry? Stoning, according to the Old Testament, was the penalty for blasphemy. The Jews were angry not merely because Jesus claimed to exist before Abraham, but because he claimed for himself an eternal pre-existence. He not only existed before Abraham, he always existed. It was for this reason that the Jews were furious. Jesus claimed to be the great I Am. He is from everlasting to everlasting. From eternity to eternity, he existed before John, before Abraham, before Adam, before the creation of the world. Remember that Old Testament prophet Micah quoted it a few weeks ago. Micah said, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. Listen, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting, everlasting. Jesus is without any historical beginnings. And we say with confidence that He is true, God, fully divine. This is precisely where the Christian faith runs into conflict with so many cults of our day. Many deny that Jesus is true God, equal to the Father and the Holy Spirit. We reply that the word, logos, was from the beginning. The word was with God, and the word was God. He's both distinguished from God and identified with God. He differs in person from the Father, but is one in essence with the Father. This, brothers and sisters, is one of the non-negotiable doctrines of the Christian faith. We confess that Jesus Christ, the Word, the Logos, is uncreated, eternal, almighty, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. He is not a creation of the Father, but He is truly, really God Himself, the eternal, natural Son of God, the only begotten of the Father. But then consider, secondly, that He is the incarnate Word. He is the incarnate Word. Look at our text, verse 14. And the Word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal Word, the uncreated, the sovereign one, the author of all things became flesh. The Word incarnate. The baby in the manger at Bethlehem was none other than the eternal Word of God. Someone said, he who is all-powerful wrapped himself in perishable skin. He who is all-powerful wrapped himself in perishable skin. Here in verse 14, we see the eternal Word leaving his heavenly palace Taking upon Himself our human nature and dwelling among us in this pit of sin, iniquity, sorrow, and suffering. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us from the palace to the pit. 2003, some of you remember this well, I'm sure. The world watched with great interest as the news announced the capture of Saddam Hussein. Several months before that, the world watched American troops enter his presidential palace and we were all taken aback by the wealth of the Iraqi leader. The news reported that Saddam lived in a golden palace richly decorated. Luxury, wealth, and glory. He had everything he wanted. When he spoke, people listened and promptly responded. A few months after they entered the presidential palace, we all heard the report. The Iraqi dictator had been captured. Where was he found? Children? Maybe some of you learned about it in school at one time or another. Where was he found? He was found in a pit in the ground. The contrast between his former life and his current existence could hardly have been greater from a palace to a pit. From the life of royalty to the life of a rat. From glory to humiliation, a small hole in the ground. The man the world saw on the television screen was certainly not the confident Saddam of a few months prior. What the world saw was a defeated, dirty, unshaven, unkempt individual. No power, no glory, no honor, no golden palace, no luxury. From a palace to a pit. Glory to humiliation. Brothers and sisters, if the reports of what Saddam had done to the Iraqi people were accurate, if he killed hundreds of thousands of his own people, men, women, and children, then he certainly deserved to be taken from his throne. But now consider for a moment our Lord Jesus. He who dwelt in the palace of heaven who enjoyed the worship of angels, a place of supreme delight, who received glory, honor, and power with the Father and the Holy Spirit, he who experienced no pain, suffering, or discomfort of any kind, this Lord Jesus willingly left the palace of heaven and came into this world to be humiliated, to suffer, to be rejected, and finally to die at the hands of sinners. Our Lord Jesus was not driven from his heavenly palace to live in a pit. No, congregation. He willingly left his palace and took upon himself the form of a servant and willingly endured pain and intense grief. Saddam was driven from his golden palace because of his own wickedness. Jesus left his heavenly palace because of your wickedness. Saddam had to endure court proceedings and execution for his inexcusable crimes. Jesus had to endure court proceedings and was sentenced to death for your inexcusable crimes. Congregation, the contrast that we saw in Saddam Hussein between a golden palace and a pit is really minor when compared to the contrast that we see in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He left the incomprehensible beauty of heaven for this world, which is nothing but a pit of sin, iniquity, sorrow, and suffering. The mystery of the incarnation is unfathomable. The divine word became a real human baby. He who who made man became man. He who created the human race became one of us. He did not cease to be God, but he became the God-man. If the Word was God and the Word became flesh, then God became flesh. He became human, Jesus was human, and Jesus was God. I cannot explain it adequately. I cannot understand it, but our text declares it. God became man. And I want you to notice something here about that word, dwelt. Please follow along. Have a look again at our text. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word that is translated dwelt literally means to dwell in a tent or in a tabernacle. Verse 14 can be translated like this, the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us, or the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Sometimes this expression has been understood to mean that he lived among us, pitched his tent among us for a short time. But there's something far more significant here. The tent or tabernacle language is drawn from the Old Testament. Any Jew who read this verse would immediately think of the tent or tabernacle in the wilderness. The tabernacle in the wilderness was very important. Why, children? Why was it so important? Because it was the place where God met with his people. During their desert wanderings, the tabernacle was the most important tent in the camp. Where was it set up? In the very middle of the camp, the 12 tribes were set up in a square around the tabernacle, three tribes on each side. In this way, the Lord symbolically dwelt in the midst of his people. The tabernacle was a place of worship, a place where God's will was revealed to man, a place where sacrifices were offered to atone for sin, a place where God and man could enjoy covenant fellowship. Brothers and sisters, when the Apostle John declared that the Word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us, he was saying that what was foreshadowed in the tabernacle and temple was now fulfilled in the Word made flesh. The tabernacle in the wilderness was a shadow. Jesus is the reality, Emmanuel, God with us. Through the Incarnation, God dwelt with His people in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. The message of the tabernacle, God dwells with His people, is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Christ Himself is the ultimate dwelling of God with man. As the tabernacle was a place of worship where God's will was revealed to men, where sacrifices were offered, where God and his people could enjoy covenant fellowship. So all these things are perfectly accomplished in Jesus Christ. Congregation, it is through him that we worship today. Through him, we have access into the Father's presence. Through His suffering and death, our sins have been atoned for. Through Him, the character of God has been revealed to us. He was the invisible God made visible. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. What a gift of love. He came and pitched his tent in our midst so that we may enjoy covenant fellowship with God. He became a man and dwelt among his people in a very personal way. That word flesh in verse 14 means that Christ took our humanity, our human nature that is subject to pain, weariness, weakness, suffering, and death he willingly took to himself our nature with all its limitations that are part and parcel of human existence, all limitations except for sin. The infinite God, almighty creator, took upon himself the limitations of our flesh so that he felt human pain, sorrow, suffering, and fatigue. Imagine, brothers and sisters, the eternal word appearing on earth as a helpless baby. All he could do was lie down and stare, blink, and wiggle his tiny body. He needed to be fed, diapered, and taught like any other child, held, carried, and cared for. Truly, the incarnation is an unfathomable mystery. He became like us so that we may become like him. In his humanity, he had the same limitations common to all men, except that he was without sin. He hungered. He wept. That's why I don't particularly like the line in the Christmas song, Little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. He wept. He cried. He endured pain. He was capable of suffering death. In all these respects, he was just like you. Just like you. His human nature had the limitations of normal humanity except that he was without sin. Why did he do it? To save sinners, he became like us so that we may become like him. congregation one of the things that's so comforting about the incarnation is that Jesus is able to sympathize with us for he knows what it's like to live as a man in the sin-filled world he was at all points tempted as we are he can identify with you because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us he knows the struggles pains trials disappointments and spiritual battles that you go through every day He can identify with the physical pains that you experience. If you're going through a trial right now, He understands what you're facing. He left His heavenly palace and pitched His tent here in this muddy pit. He knows what it's like to live in this moral and spiritual pollution and to face the attacks of the evil one. Brothers and sisters, He is not aloof and distant. He walked where you walk, groaned where you groan, and struggled where you struggle. Have you, ever been, have you ever been in a tough situation where you feel as though no one understands your pain, your sorrow, your loneliness, your agony of mind and heart? No one understands the spiritual struggles that you have been grappling with? Brothers and sisters, Jesus understands. For he became flesh and dwelt among us. Having left the palace of heaven, he knows very well what it's like to experience loneliness, temptation, and spiritual battles. You will never descend into a valley that is deeper than the one he descended into. You will never endure agony of mind and soul that is more intense than the agony of mind and soul experienced by the incarnate Son of God. And now, when you cry out to Him, He knows exactly what you're dealing with. When no one else seems to understand, He understands, for the eternal Word became fleshed and pitched His tent among us. When you're discouraged, Burdened, weary, and troubled, turn to your sympathetic mediator. There is no one like him. And then thirdly, our text not only speaks of his eternal existence and his mysterious incarnation, but it also speaks of his divine glory. The glorious Word. Let's read again verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice, we beheld His glory. What does His refer to? It refers to the Word. If the Word is Jesus... And if the word is God, then in Jesus we beheld the glory of God. Down in verse 18, we read that God is invisible, right? But in our text, verse 14, we learn that even though God is invisible, He has revealed Himself in a special way, by the incarnation. In Jesus, the only begotten of the Father, we see God's glory. Even though He is invisible, we may know Him in the person of His Son who pitched His tent among us. When we observe Jesus Christ, we know what God is like. Calling Jesus the Word implies that He is God expressing Himself. Calling Jesus the Word implies that He is God expressing Himself. Now, a moment ago... I mentioned that the word dwelt literally means to dwell in a tent or to dwell in a tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. I said that for a Jew, the obvious reference here was to the tabernacle in the wilderness, the place where God met with his people. It foreshadowed the fact that Christ would become incarnate and dwell among us. Well, now as you read on in verse 14, you come to the word glory. We beheld his glory. Glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. The word glory, again, brings us back to what? That Old Testament tabernacle. When it was built and ready for use, an amazing thing happened. You remember the story, children? You remember what happened there? The cloud covered the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled it. Moses was unable to enter because the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In verse 14, John is telling his readers that Christ's glory has superseded the bright cloud of glory that appeared in the tabernacle. The glory at both the tabernacle and temple was manifested in its fullness in the Word made flesh, the only begotten of the Father. Well, what then did John see when he beheld the glory of Christ? And when did John see his glory? There was one occasion when John literally saw the glory of Christ. It was when Jesus took Peter, James, and John and brought them to a high mountain and was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. And the same glory cloud that appeared at the tabernacle and in the wilderness and at the temple overshadowed them. John literally saw the glory of the divine word. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the splendor of Jesus' deity burst through the cloak of his humanity and the transcendent majesty of God shone forth. The congregation. I don't think the transfiguration was the only thing that John had in mind when he said, we beheld his glory. I suspect John was speaking of glory that was continually revealed in Jesus life and ministry look for just a moment to chapter 2 flip to chapter 2 and go down to verse 11 this is just after the first miracle that Jesus performed turning the water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee this is what we read at the end of that account verse 11 this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory. He manifested His glory. You see, congregation, for those who had eyes to see, the glory of Christ could be seen in all His words and works. This was one of the reasons for for His coming into the world, so that in Him people could behold the glory of God. Do you wanna know what the invisible God is like? Then look at the life, character, and ministry of Jesus. When you come to know what he is like, you come to know what God is like. And verse 14 tells us that the glory which John and others saw in Jesus was precisely what could be expected from him who is the only begotten of the Father. He who is the eternal, natural Son of God can only be glorious. The only begotten. The only begotten is one word in Greek, and it points to the uniqueness of Christ. There is none like Him. He is uniquely begotten, eternally begotten. The Son proceeds eternally from the Father as the second person of the Trinity. When the Bible proclaims Jesus as the only begotten of the Father, it is an assertion of his deity. He is uniquely begotten as the eternal Son of God. John and others saw his glory. Glory which could be expected from him who is begotten of the Father from all eternity. And our text goes on to say that he is full of Grace and truth. Grace and truth. The only begotten of the Father came into this world with a message of grace. He proclaimed the gospel of grace, spoke of the free and overflowing goodness of God for guilty sinners, and lavished His goodness upon those who deserved the opposite. And John says that the only begotten of the Father is also full of truth. He spoke the truth, lived the truth, and his life was a model of truth. He is called the way, the truth, and the life. Congregation, when we look at Jesus, we see what God is like, full of grace and truth. When we consider the glory of Jesus and his words and works, then we gaze upon the Father When you study his life, what do you find? You find wisdom, goodness, love, patience, grace, and truth. The character of the invisible God becomes clear through the work, life, and ministry of Jesus. He came into this world and became human so that sinners like you and me may be the recipients of God's undeserved favor, all the blessings that you enjoy for time and eternity are the result of His grace. Jesus was also born into this world so that He could bring truth to those who had been caught in the lie of the evil one. He was born into this world not because He needed us, but because we needed Him In the coming of the only begotten, we see the glory of God's grace and truth. And brothers and sisters, through the eternal natural Son of God, we may also now be called what? God's children. Because of His grace and truth, we are adopted children of God. He set us free from the lie and the liar. He's delivered us from our sin and from the tyranny of the devil. He has purchased us body and soul to be his very own. If you back up to verse 12, you read these words. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. If you receive him for who he really is, then you are God's child, his child by adoption. The eternal natural son of God can now be called your brother. All who are rescued with his precious blood are children of God, and thus Jesus is our elder brother. The congregation thank God for all that he has given us through his only begotten. He has bought us. He has brought life to those who were dead, hope to those in despair, grace and truth to those who were lost. And Jesus has revealed to us the mind, heart, and character of the invisible God. Consider the wonder of the incarnation. He pitched his tent among us, dwelt among us, so that you may dwell with him in his heavenly tabernacle. What do we read in Revelation 21 verse 3? Has your mind already gone there? Behold, the tabernacle, there you have it again. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Jesus pitched his tent, tabernacled among us, and because of his grace and truth, we may dwell with him in eternity. He will pitch his tent with us forever. We shall be his people, and God himself will be with us and be our God. We will behold his glory. Receive this wonderful Savior, and he will fill your heart with everlasting joy." Charles Spurgeon, the great London preacher of the 1800s, was 16 years old and unconverted when he entered a small Methodist chapel. Sunday, January 6, 1850, Spurgeon rose from his bed before sunrise. He was unable to find rest for his soul. Later in the morning, he set out for a certain church recommended by his mother. As he walked, the snow came down heavily. Eventually, the storm compelled him to to turn uh, down a, a side street where he came upon the small Methodist chapel. Because of the snowstorm, there were only 15 people in the congregation. The pastor of the church was snowed in. The person who led the service was a simple man with very little education. He had a hard time even reading the Bible. He took his text from Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. The man spoke some very simple words, encouraging the people before him, those 15 people, to look to Christ. Do not look to yourselves, said the lay preacher, but look to me, that is Christ. At one point, he looked directly at Spurgeon and said, young man, you are very miserable. Ah, and you will always be miserable if you don't do as my text tells you, and that is, look to Christ. Then he said, young man, look. In God's name, look. And look now, look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. Spurgeon said, I did look, blessed be God. I know I looked then and there, and he who but that minute ago had been near despair had the fullness of joy and hope. The cloud was gone, the darkness rolled away, and in that moment I saw the sun I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard the word look, I could almost have looked my eyes away. I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith that looks alone to Him. I thought I could dance all the way home. Congregation. What that lay preacher said to his people, I say to you today, look to Jesus. Look to God's only begotten. Look to the word who became flesh. Look to the one who is full of grace and truth, and he will fill your heart with everlasting joy. Look to him, and the cloud will be gone. The darkness will roll away and you will see the sun." Look to Jesus, the eternal Word, the incarnate Word, the glorious Word, our Lord, Emmanuel. Have you looked to Jesus? Let us pray. Lord, these verses from your word are so profound. There's so much we have yet to understand. But when we consider the Word becoming flesh, Lord, and what that all entails. There's so much for us to process and our small minds are, have a hard time comprehending it all. But we thank you for the eternal Word, the incarnate Word, the one who took on our flesh, identified with us, the one who tabernacled among us, We thank you for the glorious word. We thank you for those wonderful words in the book of Revelation. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. We thank you that because our Lord Jesus pitched his tent among us, that one day we may dwell with you in glory never to be troubled by our sin again. We thank you that while we remain here, we may know that we have a sympathetic mediator who understands our struggles, one who walked where we walk, one who groaned where we groan, one who wrestled where we wrestle, one who now comes alongside us. Lord, to think that that tiny baby, born in Bethlehem, was God incarnate. It defies our comprehension, and yet, Lord, you give us enough to understand that it fills us with praise. We pray that each and every person here this morning would look to Jesus. Lord, that each and every one may receive that wonderful pardon and assurance of acceptance that we too are children of God by adoption. We pray that as each one of us look to Jesus, we may experience the joy of the cloud being gone, the darkness rolling away, and being able to see the sun. So receive our praises as we conclude this service. May we build one another up in faith as we consider these truths. The only begotten who is now our elder brother through faith in his name. We thank you. We praise you. We worship you. We love you. Amen.